0: Hi everyone, thanks for coming. We'll start in around 10 minutes. Thank you. Hi Victoria, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? Great, great, thank you. Looking at fireflies in the backyard. <laughs> so you. beautiful. Yeah, I'm so surprised. I'm looking at small dogs. <laughs> I really didn't think we would have them uh, here in Brooklyn, but we have them. So, <laughs> hi, Jamie.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Hi, Dan. How are you? Welcome. How are you doing? Hope you're having a nice evening.
1: Hello, I'm doing well. Can you hear me OK?
0: Yes, perfect.
1: Great, awesome. Yeah, having a good evening. Um, nice day at work and some collaboration meetings, and now uh, got the kids fed, and now they're uh, getting their, their some TV time in before bed. So.
0: Oh, sounds like a perfect day
1: pretty good day yeah Yeah. absolutely how are you doing good
0: too we discovered you know we moved into a month ago into a new apartment here in brooklyn and we have a backyard now and we discovered we have actually fireflies i'm so sorry. oh that's cool oh that's really
1: exciting
0: 10 minutes ago so we are hanging out here and looking at them
1: oh that's great yeah i love it
0: so you know we put some fake grass but there was like patches with like wildflowers so i kept those and apparently that was the key i read to keep those yeah so that's fireflies so
1: sounds it like works. it worked out pretty well yeah that's great i love
0: them <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: oh that's fantastic i love it
0: we um when we for my postdoc i was at stony brook and um we left really by a like behind the backyard was like a nature preserve and there were this fields of wildflowers they were like taller they would grow taller than than a person with like sunflowers wild ones and stuff and you had this field full of fireflies in the evening oh, it was nice. so pretty <laughs> oh that and, sounds
1: amazing <laughs> yeah
0: and i'm so happy that I we really have them back time. so
1: that's great. That's great.
0: Anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's that's great. It's fantastic. Yes,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm glad you had a good day. How are you, Victoria and Jamie? Meet Victoria and Jamie.
2: Hello. Hello, Doctor. I'm Jamie. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm quite looking forward to your talk tonight.
1: Thanks. Nice to meet you as well.
2: And that awesome. does sound like you had a very good day, and um, uh, and what a better way to end it than to talk about science, yeah? Right?
1: I oh, <laughs> always love talking about science. It's the best. It really is. It
2: really, really is.
0: Hi, Frank. How are you today? Meet Frank. He's joining us here too.
3: Hello. Hi, Dan. Hi, Katarina. Uh, it's uh, looking forward to this. Uh, this question very exciting yeah uh thanks Stan for uh, coming
0: you, and, you, uh, yeah you sound it. a little bit like you were in the matrix um or is it maybe just from me because it's... no I,
2: I heard it as well um, yeah yeah i'm, I'm here it too yeah, yeah. come out of the matrix and join us frank <laughs>
3: <laughs> how do i sound perfect
2: yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: there you go. Mask, yeah. Yeah. Great. Hey, hey, again. Yeah. Thank thank you, Dan, for, for coming. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Happy to be here. This should be fun.
0: We'll start in around four minutes, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, yeah, it will be an exciting talk. So then, um, I th- I know last time I was like Frank I just couldn't fix it in the matrix, so just <laughs> to let you know the flow if you didn't hear last time, uh, you know I'll introduce you in a few minutes and then Victoria will ask you a couple of questions, like more general uh, questions and then you know if you want to start with your talk after that and then you know would be like questions about about your research is that okay?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sounds
4: Perfect. great. You say that now.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Hello, Dan. Nice to meet you. Hi, Frank. Nice to meet Jamie. you,
1: too. <laughs> Looking forward to the yeah. pop quiz.
4: Oh, good. It's supposed to be fun here in Science Society.
1: <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. Should be a good
0: time. It was even a good time earlier today. We had the guest speaker from the UK and it was about chronic pain. It was still a nice enjoyable room. Although the topic was about pain. So
3: Well, hopefully
1: fixing the pain. That's always a good a good yeah, uh, you know, hopefully it wasn't a talk about making the pain worse. So
0: <laughs> Well actually <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> This the do you, research, do you made say it that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair, fair.
0: No, but it's really promising, so uh, we are really glad that's great. For that room. So, yeah, yeah, we had a couple of rooms about chronic pain because we have a few members also, and I have also a few friends that are struggling with chronic pain, so it's really promising recent research, so yeah, so. So we are
2: happy about that <laughs> yeah absolutely plus my favorite thing about being in science society is all the things that i didn't even realize i didn't know that's my favorite <laughs> thing. Like, the unknown you know, unknowns yeah yes yes because it's like i didn't even know to ponder these things let alone that they could be pondered you know yeah that's like that's like we looking at him um, your talk coming up i was like the same thing i was like wow i didn't even know some of this stuff could be possible and i cannot wait to hear how this is like you know been explored and implemented and researched it's just that that's the most exciting thing for me
1: i mean same same here right a lot of the things i'm going to show today we've just we've learned over the last couple of years and taken lots of inspiration from what other people have done i have not I don't come from like a 3D printing background. And so it's kind of a field we've moved into. I'll talk about this a little bit, but really I work on um, nanomaterials. And so about three or four years ago, we were like, oh, could this be useful for 3D printing? And the same thing, right? To see what people have done, to see what people were thinking about was just like a six month to almost a year, year and a half journey of like, oh my God, so much cool stuff, so much interesting stuff um and so we were happy just to make our own small contribution to that but it's really really cool all around
2: definitely i don't even know that much about nano fibers is that literally like fibers that can be put together like on the nano scale is that is that like how it sounds or is that something else
1: so there's all sorts of different nanomaterials the ones i'm going to talk about today are um little nanospheres um about 60 nanometers in diameter but you can assemble materials into uh wires so 1d like long like a wire into platelets so like a sheet of paper um little tiny dots all sorts of stuff it's really fun it's really cool
2: That I mean, I, i'm so... biased but uh, uh no no that is that is so cool we we had a speaker not long ago who had made like little uh like was it a little narrow I like got the molecule size robots that were focusing on a, in a swarm. And oh, nice. Asked, yeah. When I asked how big the swarm was, I'm sure he said something like a, a few millimeters. And at first I was like thinking, oh, that swarm isn't very large. And I thought, Jamie, they're molecule size. That's a swarm. <laughs> <laughs> like, get, get your head around the size, you know, to, to be that size and then even to be, millimeters and sort of like width or whatever is still incredible um
1: i mean it's still i've i've been in nanomaterials for gosh 15 years now and it's still like the length scales are crazy right like a piece of hair on those scales is gigantic it's a mountain you know we build um one of the things my lab works on besides the things i'm going to talk about today is um light emitting diodes so literally like a, something that you would put in your phone screen or something like that and the whole device is uh 200 nanometers thick that's you know uh a hundred more than a hundred times thinner than a than a single hair right that we make and this whole thing emits light and does all these cool th- it's it's insane it's totally crazy the nanoscale
2: is weird and wonderful um, in equal measure did, did it take you a long time to like um get your- so mind adjusted to this kind of scale without like I know that when I'm thinking of nano size um I'm able to focus on it vaguely and hold on to it and then I'll I'll forget and I'll say is that as big as like I you know I'll say a hair or something then I have to remind myself no, no 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 we're talking like many 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 times smaller than this over and yeah. over again
1: yeah, it definitely it definitely took a couple of years to really be like comfortable of like, oh, that that piece of dust is four microns tall. That's gigantic, right? Um, uh, and and to kind of be comfortable with those those translations was was a long time. Uh, was several years, I think, before you start feeling more comfortable with the the size scales.
3: Yeah, uh, Dan, yeah. Thanks for the beautiful slides. I just I was just uh, browsing through. Very exciting. <laughs> I do see you had, uh, I mean, uh, I'm can actually, we start
0: uh... the room maybe and then discuss all the topics? I think, you know, because it's uh, 9.03 and I'm not sure how long then, <laughs> you know, wants to stay. Maybe we'll just start and then get to all your questions. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society and especially. Uh, a uh, very warm welcome to you, Dan, for making, you know, the count coming here, going through all this trouble. So we really appreciate that. And, um, and before we start, uh, let me introduce Dan a little bit um, so um, you get to know him. Um, so um, <coughs> Dr. Um, Dan Conriff, um, he received his Bachelor in Science and Master in Science from Iowa State. Um, And um, he was working with Victor Lal studying uh, defect densities of nanocrystalline and amorphous silicon. And later on he went to do his PhD at MIT in electrical engineering, um, where he worked with um, Mark Baldo. And uh, his thesis uh, focused mostly on photonic energy conversions. Um, using singlet fission and triplet fusion as a down-converting and up-converting processes. And he spent then a year as a postdoc uh, in Tisdale in chemical engineering at MIT. And then he uh, joined the Roland Institute and started at Stanford University, where he is now an assistant professor of electrical engineering. And he's a Moore Inventor Fellow and a Term and Faculty Fellow and a co-founder of Quadratic 3D, a startup looking to commercialize 3D printing technologies. And his current research interest is focusing on applying nanomaterials and nanotechnology to challenging problems. So, um, Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's a great honor and Victoria, please go ahead and ask your questions. Thank you.
4: Hello. All right, I'm back. So uh, where are you? Okay, Dan, welcome to Science Society and Katarina, that was a fascinating uh, CV that you just gave. So Dan, my question for you is to carry us into your discussion of your research on a more personal level so can you think back in your life and find a a place that you felt like you noticed that you had a particular affinity for science sometime that maybe you felt really connected to science and that could be as a child or any time in your life really
1: yeah absolutely so first of all um, oh, hold on. My phone is freaking out. Perfect timing.
4: No freaking, please. Uh,
1: yeah, right. Uh, I wish I could just tell it to that. Uh, anyways, thank you so much for that That really good introduction. Nice job, Katerina, working your way through a very um, wordy uh, bio. So much, much appreciated. Yeah, that's a really great question. And a, a couple of things um, spring to mind. You know, I, I think I just I really always loved um, Building stuff as far back as I can remember, you know, Legos and Kinect sets littered our basement as a kid. Um, And so I think I was always destined to be in engineering. Um, But the one kind of thinking about a singular moment um, was uh, one that set me on my current path today that was really important, which was my junior year of undergrad. Um, I sort of had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, You know, I knew I liked math, I knew I liked building things. Um, but I didn't know what I kind of wanted to do. And what happened is I took a class in device physics. And this is a class that's basically about how do transistors work? Like what are the individual electrons doing um, that actually lets transistors in your computer chips work? And this you know, also for light emission and solar cells, kind of similar themes. And I just remember it was the hardest class I had taken. It knocked me on the floor. Um, But it was just so interesting and so cool and I ended up doing research uh, in that professor's lab just kind of in my spare time and I just like it was so interesting and to build that I built remember building my first solar cell and putting it under the sun and seeing it generate electricity was just the coolest thing and I literally um, zeroed in on my career from there and was like I need to work on this for the rest of my life and So then from there, um, went to PhD to work in the device physics area and kind of working with these different nanomaterials. And it all kind of piled from there. But that's one moment that really stands out to me. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is this is so cool and so interesting. And I've never encountered concepts like this before. A little bit in the preview, we were talking about, you know, exploring unknown unknowns in science. And this was one that really stood out to me.
4: Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for having it stand out to us like that as well, too. That does sound really exciting. I'm I'm thinking, yeah, solar cells. I'm just thinking of um, doing uh, solar cookers for cooking pizza in the backyard. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm, on, Amazing. I'm on that
2: level. <laughs> yeah. Love it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Or, or the thing where you take a box and you cut a hole, and then you put a two-liter empty water bottle and you fill it with water and stick it in the hole, and then it illuminates the inside of the box. That's kind of yeah. Okay, different level. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, can you please take us from from that um, you know that moment of epiphany to you, where you are today in your current research and how you've arrived here? And thank you. This is a wonderful story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... In that same lab, I actually ended up getting my my master's uh, as well, doing doing research on that. And and the um, in my bio, the defect densities of different kinds of silicon is basically figuring out how to make better solar cells. Is what that really means is understanding why solar cells, why the materials are not doing well, and helping to figure out a way to help them do better. Um, and I really really liked that topic. And so when I went to do my PhD. Um, I began working with a different type of solar cells made out of organic materials. These literally organic means you know, carbon and, and hydrogen and nitrogen based like organic molecules that make us. And it turns out if you structure those really well, inspired by you know photosynthesis and stuff like that, you can actually make really good, really well performing solar cells. And so I started working on my Ph.D. Um, studying those materials and trying to make better versions of those materials. And from there, um, I really then, you know, kind of took a small turn again of just these nanomaterials in general were so interesting. And our ability to control these materials at the nanoscale, um, the way we can control light, I'll talk about one of them today when we get into the research a little bit. But the way we can control light and energy with these nanomaterials really turned out to be quite inspiring. And so... Um, I made that a focus of my research going forward. So through the end of my PhD uh, into uh, postdoc and now into my independent career, really what I want to do on a day-to-day basis is use nanomaterials to control energy and to control light and apply that to different applications, whether it's a solar cell or um, light-emitting diode or lasers or 3D printing as we'll, we'll talk about today.
4: Hi, I'm navigating back to my microphone. No <laughs> and <to> worries. <laughs> and all of you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. So, at this point, um, I'm not going to respond. I mean, you know, that's amazing. Um, at this point, you're welcome to launch into the delivery of your talk. And then please know that it's up to you whether you would prefer to have a QA following your discussion or if you'd like the QA to uh, drive your discussion along that's up to you um, friends when we invite you up on stage please flash your mics before asking questions I'm going to imagine at the end so that we can make sure that everybody has a chance to ask their question and have your voices heard and, and we'll just try to keep them to one question at a time to make sure that um, again everybody has time and we don't we don't wear out our, our um, generous guest alright so at this point Dan um, the mic is yours
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'll say right here at the start, please feel free to interrupt and ask questions. Um, I'll try to build in some some breaks here as well to to pause for questions because we're going to talk about a lot of things here with a lot of different themes. Uh, And so please feel free to stop and ask questions at at any point if something's confusing or interesting or there's an extension you want to talk about anything like that. So my title is a little bit of a handful, um, and we kind of have to break it down chunk by chunk, which is uh, volumetric 3D printing, and we'll talk about what that means, enabled by triplet fusion upconversion, and we'll talk about what that means, nanocapsules, and we'll talk about what nanocapsules are as well. And if you put these pieces together, it turns out the um, long and short of this talk is kind of what I talked about in the introduction, which is if we can control nanomaterials, we can control the properties of light, and we can use it to do um, some really fun stuff. And so I have some images here at the start. We'll talk more about these as we go forward. So before I talk about anything else, I think the first thing I want to introduce to you guys is a very general concept, which is called upconversion. And I've been interested in how we can change the color of light for a long time. And so this is really a process where you can take um, a color of light which has a particular energy and change it into, uh, into a different color of light, which has a different energy. And what we're specifically interested in is can we go from lower energy light to higher energy light? Now you may of course be like, well Dan, that seems like it violates conservation of energy and you would be right. So what we do is we take multiple low energy photons and here I'm on slide two. Um, if you take two low energy photons and could jam their energy together, to make one higher energy photon this would have a lot of exciting applications and indeed it really does we have lots of different ways you know i do it uh, mostly in one way in my lab but there are several different ways that you can do this up conversion process uh, and it turns out there's a lot of really interesting things you can do with it if you can convert low energy light into higher energy light one that stands out is you can use it to make more efficient solar cells solar cells can only absorb to a particular color or wavelength of light, and they can't absorb light of energy less than that. So if you could use this process to take those really low energy photons and somehow make them higher energy again, you could harvest them with your solar cell. And that's one example. Another example is bio uh, interactions like bioimaging or optogenetics. These are really cool techniques that biologists have worked out to probe different aspects of our body, to understand how our body is working, even to show control over things like neurons and stuff like that. But one of the big challenges they face is that uh, visible light tends to not penetrate well through tissue, right? It's literally why your hand is opaque. You can't see through your hand because any light that comes to your hand is absorbed or scattered. You can't see through it at all. But it turns out if you move to the infrared, where the light energy light is lower, this can actually penetrate through tissue. And so we're looking at using this for schemes where you could use this penetra- penetrative light to go through tissue and then turn it into the high energy light you need to do these applications. So this is really a, a fu- quite a fun process that we're looking at studying here. And of course, I've put 3D printing here. That's the big one we're going to talk about today. So the big thing for upconversion here as a process is two low energy photons in, one higher energy photon out. And if we look at what's been done with this process, this is a process that's been pretty well understood over the last several years uh, over the oh really last couple of decades of these looking at these different processes, understanding the materials you need, understanding the parameters that you need, all of these different things. But demonstrations of this really using this technology to do these exciting things that I'm talking about have been somewhat limiting. And so the question is, as an engineer, how can we take this technology, which is really cool, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the details in a second, and apply it to these different applications? How can we engineer this technology to translate it uh, to the real world? And so the big challenge that we're facing, and now you're at the big red slide that says the challenge in bold letters, uh, is that active materials tend to absorb or scatter the light that they need. And so I've already given you one example of uh, the biological materials, which will scatter light before it gets to the point that you want. Um, but I can give you a second example. And this brings us now to 3D printing, okay? And of course, 3D printing is the process of creating a shape in three dimensions in its most general form. And hopefully a lot of us have had experience with a 3D printer out in the world. You know, There's really great companies all over the world making really great 3D printers. and what it comes down to is what you're interested in is if you look at how that 3d printer is working if you look at how it's operating almost always it's actually not a 3d printer it's a 2d printer over and over again so you this printer will print some form of a layer and depending on the technology it'll you know lift it up uh resin will flow underneath and it'll print a second layer lift it up resin flows underneath print a third layer lift it up, resin flows underneath, print a fourth layer, and on and on through this process. And if you do that a thousand times, you have a 3D printer, right? And this is something that's really interesting to me because in some ways, That's a very complicated way of doing 3D printing, right? You're asking a lot of the mechanics of the system to pick up and put down over and over again and be perfectly aligned and all of these things. And you're asking a lot of the chemistry of the system because you need that resin to flow perfectly and set up to a perfectly fine layer with a really clean interface and then be able to print it over and over again. And I think if we think back to maybe a more high level idea of what a 3D printer could be, what we really would love to do is to take a uh, just a static resin vat that doesn't move. And here I want you to picture in your heads a cup of Jello, okay? Just a Jello cup, clear Jello if you prefer, um, that can just sit there quietly. Now, what if we could just somehow scan a laser around and pattern it in three dimensions? Wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't need to do all this complicated mechanical systems. You wouldn't need all this complicated resin flowing, anything like that. We would just be great to pattern it in three dimensions. But it turns out that's really hard to do, okay? So, and here I, I give you a challenge. This is a little bit anti-dramatic because I, or anti-climatic because I, I just save my slides as a PowerPoint, so I don't, I don't get to make things appear uh, as I'm talking, but that's okay. Um, if I challenged you to cause a spot in the middle of a resin to polymerize, what would you do? It turns out this is really hard and I'm on slide five now. If I said, hey, you know, if you shine blue light on this resin, it will harden and make a plastic, right? It'll go from a liquid to a solid on this jello, right? And so all you have to do is shine blue light where you want the part to cure and you have a 3D printer. But it turns out it's actually really hard to get that blue light to the middle of the vat because you need an entrance pathway and you need an exit pathway, right? so if you look at this picture i have in the middle of slide five i'm trying to focus that blue light to a point in the middle but what's happening is you have blue light all the way in and all the way out so instead of pointing just a printing a little dot in the middle of that jello vat that that vat of jello that's in your head you've actually printed this kind of bow tie structure right and so that ultimately means your your prints are really really bad and you're never able to print a 3D print. And so this is why these companies have gone through all of this trouble to engineer these really amazing systems to do this because they don't have a way to print in the middle of a resin that. okay? And of course, because I'm talking about this and using it, this is the introduction, and also you're looking at slide five with me. What I want to tell you is using this upconversion process, we can And here we wanna take advantage of a unique property of this upconversion process. I'm not gonna go into this too deeply, so if, if you're not with me on this, just hang tight and we'll get to the cool pictures of stuff in just a second. But basically, this system has a quadratic relation to the input light. Meaning that the output light that you get is proportional to the input light squared, okay? And what that means is that the more focused your light is, you get extra bonus light out. And so if we focus a laser light down, and here I focused down a red laser beam that doesn't affect the jello in any way. The red laser just passes through it and it's super boring. But at the point where it's most concentrated, where there's the most light intensity, right at that focal point of the laser, you see a little blue dot. And that's because that little blue dot, there's enough energy to do this process efficiently. But you can see on the way in, just red, on the way out, just red. And so now we have a way, using this quadratic process, to reach the middle of a resin vat. And so that's the whole story of this paper. I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about how we actually go about doing this in, in the real life. Like This is the TLDR of the entire talk, because if you can imagine with that picture on the right of slide five, all you have to do then is scan that little dot of blue light around in three dimensions and you have the print that you need, okay? So that's where we're using, that's what we're doing with this upconversion system. Um, Now, if you think this sounds like a clever solution, that's really wonderful, right? I think it's clever too. And I wanna be clear that I'm not the one who thought of this, right? So I'm not actually praising myself when I'm like, this is a clever solution. There's actually a really cool company, actually plural, there's lots of companies that do this, but on slide six, I wanna highlight one in particular. This uses a different process than what I'm going to talk about, but the high-level results are very similar. It is a uh, process that's quadratically dependent on light intensity that lets you get uh, deep excitation within a vat. And you can see this in the picture in the bottom left, where you have that little pinprick that I've circled with a white circle of light deep within a particular vial. Okay, and so this is a process called two-photon absorption where uh, you basically absorb two photons at the same time. And I'm not gonna talk about this too much because it's not something my lab works on, but I just wanna introduce this concept because it's really, really cool and really interesting. And so you can see a picture of this 3D printer here in the middle of slide six. And what this does is it focuses a laser beam down uh, and causes that little pinprick of light to cure. And you can make these amazing nanostructures. I highlighted some of my favorites here, pictures on the bottom of slide six where you can make these incredibly intricate, very, very beautiful uh, nanostructures. Uh, And and they're really great using this method that I talked about already. Uh, But this also has some real challenges. This particular process to photon absorption requires a crazy amount of power, a crazy amount of power. And so what people do is they have these really fancy, expensive lasers um, that they focus down both in local volume so they focus it to a tiny spot and they also focus it or they they shrink it in time so it's a very short pulse of a laser and it puts a ton of power density in this very small spot and then it cures this is called two photon absorption now unfortunately this uh, means that this system is very expensive you need a very very nice laser to do it and it also means it's pretty slow you have uh, you have to do kind of one spot at a time, and this leads to small print volumes, okay? So this is my um, kind of general introduction to uh, to 3D printing. And so maybe what I'll do before I talk about the specific things that my lab is trying to do is I'll pause here and see if there are uh, any questions.
3: Uh, may I? Yes, go ahead. Oh yeah, uh, great. Uh, thank, great uh, uh, research. Thanks, Dan. So the uh, I I worked with three uh, D printing uh, 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 for a regular uh, type of three D print, but I, I'm definitely aware of the nanoscript that you shared. So it's very exciting to hear. I know the pr- price tag is is <laughs> it's astronomical. Yeah. So if I mean, I'm actually been thinking of uh, possibly you know the the breakthrough must be. From the material side, especially nano. So yeah, looking forward to that. And the so, uh, just qu- quick question: the um, is it possible? Because as you mentioned, the three D printer usually SO and all other, the they go by two D uh, fashion, right? Layer by layer. So, how important is the, maybe you uh, dive into it later? But uh, how is it important to have a. Uh, uh, inside volume uh, to print is it can can that uh, requirement to, to be relaxed a little bit? Just printing uh, very shallow on the surface, so that uh, also that uh, I know that nano that the price tag comes with the laser because the two photon you know the, the cross section is very small, so that uh, uh, imagining with a uh, uh, material invention, you can just use a regular laser, and the the rest provided by the by the material. That's right. So
1: that's exactly the goal that we have is to um, use a uh, use a much less expensive laser, as I'll show in a second. I'll show why we can do it that way. So you've, you've hit the nail on the head, you're almost an audience plant for uh, heading into the next session. So that's uh, you're exactly right, that's much appreciated. Yeah, uh, that's exactly where we're headed. Uh,
5: so similarly, um are the quantum yields of um, the systems that you're using uh, markedly higher than the quantum yields of the um the two photon processes that uh, um, the others use
1: yeah so the key for us is actually not in the quantum yields necessarily so much as the absorption and we'll show this in, in just a minute but basically we're going to use a process that allows us to absorb light at a much much higher rate so this the reason this two photon absorption um it it takes so much power density is that because you're going through a virtual state you need to absorb two photons at the same time we're not doing that so we can absorb the light much much more efficiently and then it's pretty easy to um, we know how to manipulate the molecules to turn it into that higher energy light to go so really we just we get an absorption boost by doing this process and that is where um, the key sort of enabling feature comes from great question. All right, great. Um, so with that, with that introduction, what I want to talk about now is, well, what do we do differently? And here we're going to head into the wonderful world of molecules. Uh, and so we'll head to slide 7. So this is a complicated slide that has a lot going on um, with different uh, excitonic structures. And if you're not sure what an exciton is, that's cool. I'm going to, we're going to work through this together. Okay, so in a molecule, in general, in these optoelectronic molecules that we work with, and these are similar molecules, by the way, to what we may use in an organic solar cell, um, variations of them are um, in biological materials and stuff like that. They're very optically active materials that are, that are found all over the place. The um, material that's in the middle two columns, the TIPS-anth is the label, is an anthracene derivative, Um, and the one on the left is a a porphyrin derivative that I'm I'm not going to bother with the name of because it's long and sounds very chemistry-y, but um, in these molecules, you can excite them in a couple of specific ways, and the first thing to remember, what we really care about is what are the electrons doing, and we really care in molecules about two electrons. These are electrons that make up a state called the highest occupied molecular orbital, which I've drawn here as the S0 state. This is sort of the low energy state of the molecule. These two electrons just hang out uh, in this orbital and they're just happy campers. Now, because of the Pauli exclusion principle from quantum mechanics, these electrons, one has to be spin up and one has to be spin down. They have to have opposite spin, okay? Uh, and so they're, they're what we call paired spins. Now you can bring in a photon. This photon is going to be absorbed by the molecule, and because of conservation of energy, that energy is gonna be given to one of those electrons. And so that electron is gonna jump to a higher energy state. So you're gonna have one high energy electron and one lower energy electron. Now we call this state a singlet exciton. It's a short-lived bright state because it can relax back down to the ground state to that highest occupied molecular orbital uh, and emit a photon when it does this. This is a process called uh, fluorescence, and you see this a lot of times uh, in, uh, in different molecules ranging from uh, basically anything, any organic molecule that emits light up into and including the, the fireflies through bioluminescence that we were discussing. Now, there exists another state. And this one is literally a dark state, which we're calling it a dark state it makes me think like it's really evil, even though a lot of my career depends on manipulating it. Um, and these are states where the spin is unpaired. It is perfectly valid to give these molecules two electrons of the same spin, You know, both spin up or both spin down. Now, it turns out when you do this, that high energy electron can't come back down to the ground state anymore. It just kind of hangs out, because if it came back down, you would have two electrons of the same spin in a single state. And this violates something called the Pauli excluded principle in quantum mechanics. So this state doesn't really do anything, this triplet state, it just hangs out and causes trouble. And so um, in traditional organic electronics, like organic solar cells or organic light emitting diodes, these states are hugely problematic because they just cause all sorts of bad stuff to happen. Um, And in fact, one of the huge breakthroughs in OLED technology, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's really interesting in my opinion, is figuring out from a molecular level how to actually turn these triplet states uh, into uh, emissive states, how to get light out of these triplet states was a really important breakthrough uh, in OLED technology just about 20 years ago, around the turn of the millennium. This is a really important finding, um, how to use these triplets effectively. But for our uses here, they have kind of a cool silver lining. And these these triplet states are low in energy. But if you bring two of them together, if you get two of them to encounter each other, they actually can rapidly recombine to make one higher energy singlet state. And so what you can see is that we can we can put energy into two of these triplet states and get higher energy out so this is kind of the beating heart of that up conversion remember up conversion two low energy in one high energy out this is what we're doing now we're also using the molecule on the left to basically make those triplet states for us we don't need to go into too many of details of there but basically when we combine these two molecules in a careful way they can absorb low energy light very efficiently and convert that low energy red light into high energy blue light by just interacting with one another when we engineer these in a, in a careful way. And this is a process called triplet fusion upconversion. So there's another three words from the title. So we're, getting, we're crossing those off, excuse me, we're crossing them off one by one. That's triplet fusion upconversion. That's what we're gonna use. And what's really important here is that it requires orders and orders of magnitude less power density than traditional two-photon absorption. So the question we asked was on slide eight, which is, um, can we take this system that is really gorgeous and beautiful, right, and has been really well-engineered by Nanoscribe and and other companies, um, and convert it from a high-powered femtosecond laser, where this really expensive laser, and just use a cheap, easy laser pointer uh, to do this 3D printing? Uh, And that was our goal here. And we immediately ran into, we ran into a big challenge, which was that basically this material doesn't work well. These molecules don't really work well when you add them to a 3D printing resin. So if you add them to a printing resin, the upconversion just isn't efficient. Um, It doesn't trigger polymerization well, all of these sort of nasty things. Everyone sort of starts fighting with each other at the nanoscale, at the molecular level. And so we need a better way to introduce this technology to to the printing resin. And if we can do this, we really are going to be off to the races. Uh, so our first try, and I'm not going to dwell on this one too much because it's a different story, our first try was to basically wrap these in a, in a polymer. And so this was on slide 9. And this turns out to work really, really nicely. If you engineer it just right, uh, you can get pretty efficient systems. But as soon as we tried to actually use it in a printing resin, it just was a disaster. They fell apart. They broke. So I'm not, I'm not going to spend too much time on slide 9. Um, because it was a failed attempt. Although it's cool, and these have applications for for biology. So what we did in this work here is that we were able to develop what we call upconverting nanocapsules. And I've put the I've put the synthetic route on the top of slide ten. Basically, you take these molecules, um, you put them in a molecule called oleic acid, and you blend it. This is the favorite part of me because I, I, I always get weird looks when I talk about this process um we literally use a Vitamix blender and actually I should be a spokesman for Vitamix because we tested about six different blenders and Vitamix works the best um they're not paying me I wish they were um anyways you blend this really hard and you create these self-templated materials of the oleic acid micelle then we add a couple more chemicals which grow a shell that's silica that's glass around these so what these are and you can see an electron microscopy picture in the middle of slide 10. These are little nano droplets of upconverting materials surrounded by glass, a silica shell that protects them. And this is really nice because we can add these nanocapsules to whatever we want. And that silica shell protects the upconverting materials from the environment, and it protects the environment from the upconverting materials. It's really quite a good deal. Um, and so we call these the uh, nanocapsules. That's the last word uh, of the title that we have there. And you can see, for example, this is really exciting for us, where at the bo- at the bottom left of slide 10, you know, we can dilute these down to very, very low levels, and you still get this really cool, efficient upconversion. We shine a red laser in, and you see this blue line going all the way across the vial. So we're able to do the low energy to high energy across very, very deep materials. Uh, and we proved this by just basically diluting these in a bunch of different solvents, right? So different conditions, different challenges. And the top row are upconverting nanocapsules. And the blue line, and we shine a red light. And so if you see a blue line, you know it's doing upconversion. That's like your checkbox for this slide. Oh, I lost my slide number somewhere. That's sad. Sorry about that. It's slide 11. Um, That blue line serves as a checkbox for us to basically make sure that it's working. And so we can see that across all these different conditions, the upconverting nanocapsules are going ahead uh, and working really nicely and those micelles that I talked about just basically fall apart in anything that's not uh, deionized water, which is, is just very um, well purified water. Um, and so this kind of shows the stability of the materials. Okay. Good, so that's our upconverting nanomaterials. So let's go ahead and try this and see if this actually works for 3D printing, right? We have these cool materials results, or at least I, th- I think it was cool, it was fun. Um, but we really wanna see if this can work for printing. And so the scheme to do this is on slide uh, 12. If I've lost my numbers, I'm gonna lose track, but we're gonna do the best we can. Um, basically, we're gonna do what we did in that very first introductory shot, slide. We're gonna shine red light into our resin. The red light by itself doesn't do anything. It just passes quietly through. But now we can add these nanomaterials to the resin. These nanomaterials absorb the red light through this triplet fusion process, convert the red light to blue light, and that blue light then triggers the photo initiation of the resin. So anywhere you see that little blue dot in that picture, it's going to cause the resin to cure and then we can move that in three dimensions and get ourselves a 3d print um, we had to do some more tweaks i'm not going to uh, worry too much about this on slide 13 um, where we had to just play with our molecules and do some engineering i'm happy to talk further about this but i think in the interest of um, time and keeping this at a high level we just we won't talk too much about this other than that we were careful to engineer this quadratic performance of the molecules all right so let's build ourselves a resin and here we are on slide 14. So at the bottom, we have sort of four of the you know, standard boring-ish components of the resin. They're not really boring, they're actually super important, but they, they are not uh, optoelectronically active. So we have um, a monomer. This is the thing that we're going to turn from um, a single molecule into a polymer, and that's gonna be making our plastic. So that's what's going to turn into these long chains. Um, We have acrylic acid, which is just what we use to make the the nanomaterials nice and soluble and introduce them to the resin. Um, We also added a material that stops the polymerization process. And you may be like, Dan, you're 3D printing. Why would you want to stop the printing process? That seems insane. Um, And the reason for that is if you start a polymerization process, it will actually keep going on and on and on and on until something happens to stop it. And we only want it to polymerize a little bit. We only want it to polymerize where we have put the light in. So we add a material that basically says, hang on, you've polymerized enough. You need to stop now. Uh, and that's this, this inhibitor that we've put here. Uh, and finally, we added a material to increase the, the resin viscous. Thanks, buddy. Uh, my, uh, my two-year-old son just brought me dessert. So very kind of him. Uh, anyways, we added a material to basically make the resin really viscous. So when I put that idea of a jello cup into your head, uh, I wasn't kidding. We made the material about as viscous as jello. And the reason to do that is because we want to support the print as it's printing, okay? And so then on the top of the slide, i've I've shown the optoelectronically active materials. Uh, our upconverting nanocapsules are in the left on a blue box. They absorb the red light and they emit blue. That's great. That's what we want them to do. Um, And then we use this photo initiator called Evoserin. This absorbs the blue light and starts the initiation process. And then we have uh, an absorber or a light blocker. This is a molecule, this Sudan one in red, that does basically the same thing from an optical perspective that the inhibitor did from a chemical perspective. It keeps the light from traveling too far. If the light just traveled throughout the cuvette, um, you would just cure the whole cuvette. You would lose your selectivity and your resolution. All right, so we put all these things together. We figure out how to how to make this resin, and we head into the lab. And so this is on slide 15. We start doing some 3D printing. Um, the picture on the left is our home-built 3D printer. Uh, this is a FDM printer we basically ripped the the print head off of and installed a laser line on the head. So those arms can actually move that big objective in three dimensions. So that yellow line coming in. Is, um, is a fiber coupled laser that we shine through that optical line and it makes a focal point in the resin. This middle part is a video. I'm realizing saving it as a PDF means I don't get to show you the video, but I would be happy to share it uh, with anyone who'd like to see it afterwards. Basically, you can imagine scanning that blue light in three dimensions. And on the right, we have a cute little boat. It was great. Um, actually, this boat took us a lot of time and a lot of effort to work out, uh, but we see a fairly uh, reproducible set of features. Uh, we print this in about two hours which for a single voxel excitation we're pretty happy with Um, and importantly for us this was printed uh, without any type of support structures so this boat was just printed and it came out of the resin looking like this full stop so this is kind of a nice proof of concept for us that this printing process works and to get back to the reason that we think this is exciting it's not that we're able to produce this print there's lots of 3d printers that can make this print Um, but it's able that we were able to do this volumetrically and that we were able to do it at low powers in fact we used for to make this boat we used four milliwatts of laser power that's a little bit less than an average laser pointer so we used basically a laser pointer or less to make this boat and so that's we were able to do this at much much lower powers than what's traditionally required so we think that's really one of the things that gets us excited about this technique um on slide uh on slide 16, we can see a couple more printing results here. We just made the Stanford logo, which I have to do because I'm at Stanford. There's also a Harvard logo. I think it got cut from the presentation itself, but it's on the title slide because we were half at Harvard while we were doing this. Um, and then we did some resolution testing as well. Um, you can see the limits of that on this slide uh, so that we could see the limits of resolution and especially that's something we're focused on going forward. And so we are really able to develop this technology and we're really excited now to sort of turn towards what it's capable of. You know, this is just really, I wanna say this is an effort we did to really just start to work out these challenges. We just started engaging with what this is capable of, what it can do, how it can manipulate these materials. And so what we're really doing in my lab uh, now is really seeing what we can do now that we know that it works. What can we do in terms of different materials? What can we do in terms of resolution and print quality and all of those types of things. And so I think this is a really, really fun time to be working on this volumetric 3D printing work. Um, and so just to wrap up, I think, you know we threw a lot of concepts over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes that I've been talking. Um, and the big thing I want you guys to walk away with more than anything else is that if we can control materials at the nanoscale, and we're getting increasing, we here being science now, not me specifically, um, we're getting increasingly good at controlling these materials at the nanoscale, It gives us a lot of opportunities to do things that are really fun and really exciting and i think we've really just started to scratch the surface of what these materials can do and so with that i want to give some uh, acknowledgments the gordon and betty moore foundation who funded this work stanford and harvard where uh, where i did it the harvard physical sciences accelerator as mentioned at the start um, some of this technology has led to the startup quadratic 3d Um, And then my entire lab reproduced here in Lego form, Um, but I especially want to highlight uh, Tracy um, on the left and then Sam Sanders, who is in the bottom left and didn't get Lego representation, sadly, um, who were the two postdocs who led this work. They're the co-first authors on this paper. And so with that, I just want to stop there and leave plenty of time for um, questions that people may have, maybe on these results specifically, nanomaterials more generally, anything that's on on your guys' mind.
0: Thank you so much for this amazing presentation and for this very cool new technology. (laughs) It's it's really cool. Um, And um, yeah, I want to open up for questions and um, whoever, yeah, I see Frank unmuted before, then Shane, then JB. And Victoria has a question. Eli, okay. everyone has questions. <laughs> thank you. Dad. Oh Great. no, I, I awesome. was just um, applauding. I was, I was just applauding. <laughs> okay.
4: Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay. And you have a question, Caterina, of course. Um, uh,
0: yeah, like, yeah, okay, let me uh, start that. Um, so, can you basically um, print at like any complexity with this? Um, with this technology is there a limit to the complexity and is the limit more on the computing side or on the you know on the hardware side uh
1: yeah the answer is both um the thing i really like about this technology is that from a theoretical perspective it opens up a lot more print shapes print gamuts um really things that are hard to do traditionally things like overhangs and difficult angles and thin walls, they are, in principle, easier to do in this volumetric style because you don't have the same forces applied to your part as you are printing it, right? Um, Now, of course, we are nowhere near there yet, right? I'm very proud of this little boat, as I said on on slide 15, but if you look carefully, you'll see that some parts are reproduced reasonably well, but it's not a one-for-one replication. And the answer for that lies on both the material side and the software side. So the big challenge here from a material side is that the resolution of these materials is not great yet. We have to engineer these materials to have higher printing resolution. And that's one of the main things my lab's focused on now so that you can really get that light confined to a very, very small space. And so that is more of a, uh, hardware or materials answer. The second piece of this is that um, we need more intelligent software, and that's another thing that we're working on, right? If you look at um, the picture of a voxel, of an individually cured voxel, for example, um, on, oh god, my not slide number is going to kill me, uh, but I can scroll way back up to slide five, right, where we introduce this, that blue light is somewhat tall, right? um depending on how you engineer the optics of the system that's anywhere from um you know 200 to 500 microns tall and so what that means is it's kind of like trying to print with a grain of rice it's it's a little bit too tall and you can account for that in the software you can basically say i know i'm going to be printing in this this style and so i'm going to adjust how i handle my printing parameters to account for that and that's something we're working on as well we think that that's going to add um a lot of sort of true-to-form nature to this parts as well, but that's something we did not do here in this initial version that we're very much focused on now um, in the follow-up now that we we have convinced ourselves that this technology can work. Um, so that's absolutely something that's on our to-do list, both hardware and software.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I was just thinking of, you know, projecting a hologram type of thing and then um, I don't know copy paste
1: oh so that's that's the other fun part right is here we've done it basically one voxel at a time Um, but what we're trying to do now as a lab is try to do it um, to project we're not quite doing holograms but we're doing um, 2d images at a time plane at a time and that can give you really fast speed uh, increases it introduces a lot of challenges as well Um, really fun challenges that we're excited to tackle But trying to get that sort of speed increase from doing something like that, from exciting many spots at the same time, is absolutely something that we are uh, we are working on. So is 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 that in a a light sheet microscopy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, So we're we're coupling. What we're doing is we're coupling um, a digital micromirror device into a into a microscope, and then having the image at the focal plane. Um, we don't have a separate light sheet at the at the focal plane. No, we we're coupling the image of a of the light sheet into the microscope, or the image of the the uh, DMD generated. Got it.
4: Thank you. I think Frank, you had a question next.
3: Oh yes, I have uh, uh, tons of questions, but I guess uh, you know I was not uh, myself. <laughs> the uh, I, um uh, um. Uh, one question that I, ha- uh, I have is on the slides uh, number fourteen. Uh-huh. The uh, the uh, the materials. So, so uh, 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 almost. I mean, the number one question for me is the precision, right? So how uh, I understand that you're right now only a demo of concept, but uh, uh, given the setup, uh, there's huge potential. But uh, at this point, uh, you uh, the process needs a so uh, uh what is the limits limiting factor uh for precision uh, right now is it the uh, the uh so you you have a stopping agent is it uh, somehow you um, prepare the uh, your uh, uh 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 what do you call it, the uh, resins or uh, the the, the you, uh, yeah so so yeah i guess it has to be uh, uh 100 times larger than the uh particle size, right? So I mean just a rough estimate. Well, what what would be a precise estimate of what what's the limiting factor so, right now? I, I do see maybe Yeah the absolutely.
1: Year. The limiting factor right now is uh is the photo initiator. So this is the chart on the top right. The light as a function of wavelength that our capsules emit is the blue dash line. That's the bromo tips. That's the light that comes out of the nano capsules And what we've put in the green line is the absorption profile of the photo initiator. And so it actually only absorbs a little bit of the light. And what that means is when our little nanocapsules think of it as like a tiny little nanoscale light bulb, when that's emitting light, that light is traveling a long ways through the resin before it's absorbed by the photo initiator. And so it's that process, that sort of blue light traveling for 10, 15, 20, 50 microns before it's absorbed, that's what's limiting our resolution. So that's a big focus of our current work is improving that that step, finding are there better photo initiators that work? Are there better up conversion systems that could work? How do we build that coupling so that it's more efficient, right? How do we get that photo initiator to work better with these materials? Um, That's a major focus of our ongoing work. From a fundamental perspective, I think you you hinted at it, um, which is what is the fundamental size limitation of this type of process? Well, what you wanna do is obviously you can never go smaller than the distance between two nanocapsules, capsules, right? You're, as these nanocapsules are sort of light bulbs, that's sort of the minimum resolution. And in fact, you're usually quite a bit bigger. Um, so I think this technology will work really well down to about single digit microns or so. And then below that, that's kind of the area where you start getting like countable numbers of nanocrystals per voxel and below that I think you would start to run into um, uh, heterogeneous issues which may cause you
3: challenges
1: um, so we're, we're trying to push this down the resolution we're somewhere you know between 50 and 100 microns depending on the print modality at this point we're trying to push it down to you know maybe 5 10 microns um, and maybe even squeeze a little bit further down but this won't be with this nano encapsulation technique this won't be like a a nanoscale technique where you're getting a you know three hundred nanometer resolution, it probably is going to putter out in the in the mid microns, mid single digit microns.
3: Uh, given the cost down, I mean this is already amazing. I mean uh, to the micron level, but, but uh, uh, just uh, this might related to my earlier question. You probably uh, uh, didn't hear uh, the so in order to uh, um, my earlier question uh, was the uh, is it really necessary to uh, do deep in, in the volume printing? Because uh, we all know that 2D uh, is is, is, is uh, basically all 3D printing relies on, right? So you, you only print at a shallow surface, that's sufficient. Would that something be helpful to this? Uh, you don't have to do the penetration, right? So considering oh, the long path, uh, the complexity introduced, is, is it meaningful to, to this technology? So it's, a,
1: it's definitely a trade-off relative to the uh, sort of 2D by 2D by 2D by 2D nature of of 3D printing. Um, You know, we obviously have gone through a fair amount of work to achieve the volumetric results here in terms of the the chemical compatibility and stuff like that. And I think what I would highlight is the reason that we really do want to do this type of depth penetration, that we don't want to just do that two-dimensional nature of things, is that um, we can avoid support structures that's a big one right we don't need to build supports in our part this greatly simplifies the mechanical complexity complexity of the part Um, you know our we have a fairly simple printer here and it's actually getting easier as we we keep refining it Um, and it also simplifies the chemistry of the part you don't need that resin to flow and set up in the same way that you may with a 2d uh, layer by layer nature so i think if you talk about what's gonna be happening five to 10 years from now, I don't think, you know, even a volumetric technology, and there's a couple of different ways to do volumetric printing, all of them which are very cool. Um, I don't think volumetric printing may necessarily completely like take over and just be the only type of printing. I think each one has their strengths and weaknesses that can be applied depending on the challenge that you're trying to face. Um, and so there are applications where I think this is absolutely a really important. Uh, thing to try, and there are applications where maybe the the um, sort of the SLA your standard SLA printer is going to do um, much better, and it's just going to depend on the particulars of the case. Absolutely.
3: Oh yeah, just so, uh, a quick clarification: the the little boat they put that you print. So I just wanted to understand better uh, what you mean by uh, without support. That uh, the density changes, right? So the, you have to kind of uh, have a a. The boat uh, standing on some surface surf, uh, surface platform no? uh
1: so we have uh, engineered our resin to be viscous enough that the part doesn't sink while it's printing not to an appreciable level so that's actually why we add on slide 14 the uh, aerosil 200 it makes the resin really really viscous uh, such that the part doesn't really sink it just kind of stays free floating in the resin
3: Oh, I see. So this is almost like uh, SLS, if that the sintering like powders, right? So the, the the powder itself provides the support. Yeah, right? in that so in that way, kind is, of, yeah, right. The, it's
1: self-supporting throughout the process. Exactly.
3: Uh, interesting, but uh, uh, the advantage uh, uh, you know advantages also comes with the uh, uh, Yeah, I, I can I can I can see. You know, I, I now. Yeah, Thank
1: absolutely. you. Yeah, Great question. Great question.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um Alma, I'm trying to bring you up. Um I see you raised your hand, but for me it's not working. Um maybe you can um join back the room, like a uh, drop out and come back. Maybe that fixes the issue. Um yeah, but we are trying to invite you. Thank you. Um yeah, uh Eli, Denise, Jamie, you had questions? Please go on.
5: Yeah, so um um, to, a couple of things. One um, is on slide seven, the photophysics, um, you're, you're talking about um, essentially like the spin up electron being excited from a ground state singlet and the spin down also being excited to uh, be a, a spin down electron
1: in the excited uh, singlet state. So in the, in the excited singlet state, the excited electron would be spin up, and the, uh, the not excited electron would be spin down. They would be spin paired, one spin up, one spin down.
5: Okay, okay. Uh, so,
1: okay, so, so in,
5: in other words, the, the spin down uh, electron gets left where exactly? It, it started. Exactly, one
1: excited electron and one column. Now, that actually forms a quasi-particle called an exciton, which has its own interesting physics, but don't worry about that now
5: um there we go well it's really fun yeah yeah yeah. it's really um, fun i i
1: did a phd on it it's really interesting and and complicated but in a really fun way
5: so um the the other thing um because i'm actually like one, one of my many projects at the moment uh involves uh down conversion i'm wondering how uh uh, and and that's why I asked about quantum yield earlier. How um, efficient is the up? Conversion? Yeah,
1: great question. Let me ask. What? Tell me more about the down conversion, for a second. Uh, for for uh, luminescent photovoltaics. Uh, uh, nice. Flakes. Okay. Um, using using what material? Um, so it. Just out of curiosity.
5: Um, in in a um, you know whatever convenient optical clear optical pla- uh, plastic uh, uh, host polymer, but um, like I was looking at um, molybdenum chloride uh, europium, there was an interesting paper on on those from from UV down to IR, yeah. uh, and I'm looking for for a whole range of different. Uh, different uh uh, conversions to do neat
3: things yeah that's
1: fun stuff you should check out uh dan Gamelin's group uh he does some really cool work with that type of stuff um i did i did down conversion actually before i did up conversion with electronic processes not not optical ones but um uh nonetheless to get back to your original question uh the efficiencies of up conversion here are reasonable but not crazy um so we typically measure for these types of systems, under the conditions that we have here, somewhere on the order of like two or three percent, typically. Um, now, these up this upconversion process, this triplet fusion process, can get all the way up to about 30 or 35 percent under particular conditions, um, but in general, it sort of t- tends to hang out around you know two, three, five percent, depending on the specific conditions that you have. And, and so, I mean, are, are the conditions you're talking about, is that like, you know, total
5: deoxygenation? Yes, or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Oxygen okay.
1: shuts this process down, so it has to be deoxygenated. That's right. Got it,
5: got it. Okay, thanks.
0: Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a question that uh, Victoria had in the chat. What is the average cost of the printed object during your experiments?
1: Oh, the average cost of our printed object. Um, the short answer is, I have no idea, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, slightly, the slightly longer answer is that none of these chemicals, and really this is a chemical innovation, right? The laser's super cheap, you can, you know, five milliwatts you can get from a laser pointer. We don't use a laser pointer, we use one that's a little nicer, but um, the laser's not bad. Um, This printer itself, uh, you know, we home built it, but all told is, you know, probably something like uh, 5,000. So if you were to mass produce, it would be it would be a lot cheaper Um, of these chemicals on slide 14 Actually, very few of them are very expensive. They're pretty cheap chemicals on the whole. Actually, it turns out the only chemicals that are really fairly expensive are the um, the upconversion materials themselves, but you use them in such small quantities that it's not too painful. So the answer is, in terms of cost, I have no real idea, but I don't think it would be totally insane. We're not using materials that are, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per part, right? Some of them are thousands of dollars when we buy them in bulk, but um, on a per part basis, it's it's pretty. It's nothing too expensive, hopefully. So, um, and that's not to really comment intelligently on on a commercial viability of this particular printer, but just from the cost of chemicals in the lab.
0: Yeah, thank you. And then Krishna earlier had the question um, if this can be used for low light optics camera sensor design.
1: Yeah, that's a fun one. That's a great question. The answer is a resounding maybe, which is really maybe anticlimactic. Uh, um, certainly, you can use this. Uh, if you use a slightly different geometry, you can put this in thin films and excite from the uh, infrared to the visible wavelengths. Um, And that actually works quite well. Um, And we have some projects doing that uh, in our lab. The downside or the the challenge there, and the reason I say maybe and not like yes with two exclamation points, is that this process is really only efficient at the excitation wavelengths where like a silicon uh, CCD already absorbed. So um, you're not necessarily expanding the spectral range like way out into the infrared. this, this uh, system tends to work pretty well out to about uh, a thousand nanometers or so, which is pretty far into the infrared. but if you design if you design your camera carefully, it can also see to not quite there, but to, to close wavelengths. Um, and so you know we're actively working to, um, to push that further into the infrared, right? If you could start seeing 1,100 or 1,200 nanometers with this technique, that would start to get really exciting really fast. And so That's another thing we're trying uh, in the lab. Great question, great question.
0: Interesting, thank you. Jamie, I think you have a question.
2: Hi, uh, Doctor, thank you so much. That was an absolutely fascinating talk. I'm gonna be listening to some replays for a long time. Um, just to unpack everything my questions are kind of a basic one one of them in uh, two parts is um the material you use the jello like stuff that you used is this going to be as uh, uh, your idea is this going to be the, the, the default substance that people will get like in little tubs to make their um any objects they want to make uh, with this new printer uh, idea um and uh, and if not what well, the materials and second one is um the example you were doing of making a boat, I'm trying to picture it in my head how you were doing that. And if you made a really, really detailed one, like a like a captain standing in the middle of his cabin, sort of structure, like really detailed like that, do you have to then build it from the absolute center point um and then build it up all around around? Um, or are you creating like the floor, then the you know, then the walls? And stuff like
1: that. Yeah, two, two really good questions. The answer is this version of the resin is almost certainly um, very, very different from what someone might eventually be playing with someday. Um, we've already changed components of this moving forward. We'll continue to tinker and change components as we go. Um, in order to kind of design the system, right? I already spoke a little bit earlier about how we need to, you know, change the photo initiator and the capsules to to drive that forward. But there are other opportunities as well to improve the resin. So almost certainly, um, if something makes it to the level that there's lots of people playing with it, I think it would look probably look very different than what we've designed here. This was mostly a resin designed to prove that we could do it, right? Now that we know that we could do it, we're we're pursuing other uh, other resin design opportunities. Your second question about how do we actually print this, this is where I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself for not leaving the video in. Um, I'm happy to both um, provide the video as well as you can find it as supplementary information on the paper if, if, you, um, if you go look there, um, is we print from the bottom up. So we start at the bottom and we print upwards through the device. And the reason for that is that when you cure a part Uh, its optical properties change slightly. Its refractive index changes. And so that tends to scatter the light in unpredictable ways. Um, And so that that can really mess up kind of your resolution and your focusing of your laser. So we print from the bottom, and then so that every time you're curing, you sort of don't see those optical changes. So if you put a captain in the middle of the boat there, we would still print from the bottom up, uh, and we would print the captain as we were printing the cabin around him. Right? So he'd kind of appear at the same time.
2: That's incredible. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you for answering my question.
5: So do, do you expect that uh, um, change in, in the optical properties uh, to, to be problematic for ultimately doing things holographically?
1: Potentially. You would need to be very careful to cure everything at once. Right? Um, which which sounds maybe straightforward, but maybe not. And so it's, it's absolutely something that you want to monitor very carefully. Because if you have a light path and it's working really nicely and you're kind of curing and you're curing and you're curing, and then all of a sudden it starts to cure and the light path changes and gets broken up, that could lead to unintended consequences in terms of what the final part looks like. So it's something you have to watch out very carefully. And we haven't done, um, i can't comment too quantitatively on it just because we haven't done that yet but it's something that we're very aware of and you have to watch out for there there are some solutions you can look at but um it is definitely something that you have to be um, very careful of absolutely correct yeah i think that uh, cationic or anionic
5: polymerizations might have slower kinetics
1: yeah and uh that might be an and approach. that that yeah where you could potentially do something that's that's slow yeah
3: exactly
0: uh dennis did you have a question and then i want to be respectful of your time um uh so is it okay to have give dennis um the opportunity to ask one more question and then yeah yeah absolutely probably needs your time yeah, yeah no worries i, I have <laughs> to duck
1: out about seven fifteen pacific time because that's bedtime so um got some yeah. books to read and uh and fun stuff like that but yeah absolutely time for oh, a couple nice. more questions if they're there <laughs>
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Bedtime
1: for the kids to be clear, thank not for not for me yet. <laughs> In case that wasn't clear.
0: And, and yeah, say thanks to your kid to keep you um to keep your blood sugar high. So yeah, he's energy. he's good to me.
1: He's good to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's so cute. Thanks.
2: I must say thank you very much for an interesting presentation. It's been some time uh, that I've looked at this sort of technology uh so it was really fun to hear you describe it and uh it came out in your voice i don't have any questions at this time just once ah thank
1: well you. thanks i had a really great time uh presenting here so thank you for the the opportunity thanks for coming and listening and by the way i'll say since i think we're yeah, we're thanks. working our way towards the end if any questions come up please feel free to contact me would love to hear from from everyone my email is congreve stanford.edu just my last name um, C-O-N-G-R-E-V-E at stanford.edu or you can um, Give me a shout on on Twitter. would be happy to answer questions. My Twitter handle is at DN Congreve So pretty easy stuff uh, to find and to remember, but I'm happy if there's time for maybe two more questions if they're out there
3: Yeah, great. I mean, uh, I'll definitely you know, follow up uh, with uh, uh, more questions, but for now just so quickly the the uh... Of course the quantum part is uh, exciting but I, at this point that is uh micron level the, uh, the what what is the so at is the, the viscous viscosity at this point is these uh can that be this uh, relaxed or is it uh, in the near future is it possible to have a dilute solutions and uh, uh, or is it limited by the uh, the magnet—it's more intrinsic than that.
1: Well, you need the resin to be self-supporting, or you would have to build in support structures. Um, you need some way. Hey, basically, I,
3: I, I give. Uh, I give. Uh, you know, a, a, a movable uh, platform to, to provide the support. Yeah, in inside the solution, just like a, a whole, whole standard setup. So there's. So, I, you know, given that. There's, yeah.
1: there's no reason this wouldn't work in more viscous, uh, or excuse me, more dilute uh, situations. The up conversion would work just fine. Um, the photo initiation would work just fine. There's no fundamental reason it wouldn't work at lower viscosities. No. Um, you just would have to design so, it carefully. Got it. Great. So-
5: Thank
4: you so much. Eli, did you? i oh, sorry. Do you have any other questions, Eli?
5: Oh, I think I've asked you more than my fair
1: share, but
4: <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, thank you. Danielle. I just wanted to know if you ever made um, ice cream with your Vitamix?
1: Uh- no, our Vitamix is inside of a glove box, so I think we can't get ice cream in there <laughs> okay. very well.
4: Uh, All right, I, my mom had one of those when I was growing up, and she made the most, like, she would grind, you know, grain in there and make bread and knead it and make soup in there because it gets so damn hot. And then she made ice cream and this really amazing kind of chocolate pudding. Um, well, so, now um, I'm thinking about yeah, it. I hope...
1: um, don't worry, I'm not <laughs> going to make ice cream in the lab Vitamix. That violates, like, eight different <laughs> safety rules.
4: <laughs> yeah,
1: but we don't judge here, so. And it's going to screw with your experience. And it's going to screw with the right? experiments. Well, you never know. There may be a, a Stanford eh uh, representative on the line. So I would never, ever make ice cream in my Vitamix, I promise.
0: Can you make like jello boats that immediately are immediately jello? like you don't have to wait for gelatination? <laughs> oh,
1: mean, I man, I don't know. even know. That's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. No, no, now
5: no, here here's an interesting point. Um, uh, um, like melanins uh, are you know radical or can be radical polymerized, and uh, they would be like food. Uh, you, you could eat you could eat them because like things that we eat have melanin in them
1: so i mean uh, i have a dream i have a dream of trying to do this stuff with stuff that you could buy from whole foods you can actually get pretty close you can extract a lot of compounds from from fruit and vegetables and stuff like that that actually do these systems do these types of things in like at least a little bit um i haven't quite worked out all the details yet but that's like someday i would love to do a demo of like here is this same thing that we did in the lab, just with materials from Whole Foods instead. It's a dream. I haven't worked it all the way out yet, but I think it's fun.
0: So it would be immediate yes. candy machines in theory, in, like,
1: in very much theory. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> there are
3: food three D printing. That's uh, has be- become a uh, small industry now. So let me uh, imagine that you can print, design three D food shapes. And yeah, and stuff. I, I think I saw
1: a just chocolate out. extrusion printer, which was really cool. <laughs>
3: it made me hungry. So imagination, sky's the limit. Hey, uh, fifteen. The time. Uh, the uh, fifteen uh, time mark is coming up. But la- allow me to squeeze in quickly. Uh, maybe sure. a little more. The uh, earlier you mentioned the limiting factor. One of the, them is the the green line on, on our slide number fourteen. The uh, the photo initiator. The I'm still a bit perplexed that so given the uh, resonance of the market is somehow wavelength fixed. So you need to design something so is why the uh, Kujunju seems to be an engineering problem to have this uh, green line to shift towards uh, a long yeah range, great
1: huh? great question um, and the answer is actually if you shift that line too much further um, for and there's 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 some commercial materials that shift that line they start to be less common but they're out there and we worked with one in particular um, and tested a couple in particular they start, tending to absorb little bits of the red light and so what happens is instead of me having that statement that says the red light does nothing um, that statement becomes not true anymore when you do that and then it becomes the red light cures a little bit in the background and that makes it very hard to get a well-defined 3d printed part out it doesn't you know it doesn't absorb to the level where it's just like a brick that you make but it just your part fidelity is quite poor um, when that happens because you get sort of this background curing. And so it's very, um, it's, it's a little bit tricky. Um, we're getting much better at it now, but it's a little bit tricky to find those photo initiators that both absorb the blue light and don't do anything at all when you shine red light on it.
3: Yeah, so that's uh, how exciting the, uh, this project, you know, that's a uh, challenging solvable problem. Great. Congratulations. And thanks again. Also, Thank you. (laughs) uh...
0: Yeah, thank you so much. This was such an amazing uh, presentation and conversation. Uh, It was really a lot of fun and very interesting and very cool.
1: Thank you so much for having (laughs) me. And as I said, please feel free to reach out with any questions, either via email or on Twitter. I would be more than happy to chat and answer them. So thank you so much for having me and, and just have a great night, everyone.
0: Yeah, thanks. And maybe in the future one day you'll come back and, and show us a submarine. Oh, I would no, love I'm that. Kidding.
1: Well, submarines are ways off, but uh, we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. All right. Okay. It, it's got to be submarine.
0: powered
5: and, and, and navigating through the, the Oh solution. Perfect. You got it. Oh, I'll see okay. you guys
1: in 75 yeah. years. <laughs> right. Have a great night, everyone. Well,
0: so much
2: enjoy. Thanks, a Have evening. a good one. Thank, thank you so much, Doctor. Thank Bye. you. And
0: thanks, Caroline. Uh, thank you, and everyone. everyone. Yeah, thank you, and thanks everyone for being here, asking great questions. It was a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed uh, listening to you all a lot. And um, tomorrow we have at one p.m. EST, Doctor Santos. Um, she will talk as uh, she was in James Tour's lab. Um, doing this work of light active like light activated antibacterial molecular machines so it's like tiny robots attacking antibiotic resistant germs so it will be a really cool room james tour is a really famous scientist um so um her work was really well published so uh yeah, it will, I think it will be a wonderful room. And then starting from tomorrow, I'll be on vacation, but we will still have a few rooms next week. Not the regular, um, you know, amount of rooms. So we'll have on Tuesday, Dr. Birner talking about gas changes due to uh, fossil fuel burning, um, that helium levels are rising. And on Wednesday, we'll have Dr. Maldonado talking about food addiction vulnerability um, through um, mRNA signatures. And on Thursday, Dr. Rich Spontag will be coming again. He, he was a guest speaker here before, um, talking about self-desinfecting anionic polymers. And this is actually being already used uh, by AIR. Um, by airlines to disinfect really fast and make flights safe in COVID times. And then, um, yeah, and then the next week, I'll tell you guys the (laughs) week after. But um, yeah, so less rooms, but still very interesting work. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming and hear you all back soon. Thanks.
5: Thank you, Katerina. Enjoy your vacation and safe
0: travels. Thank you. Yeah, we'll just, you know, not go to like it's just car so but thank you thank you so much yep
3: yeah same same here enjoy vacations much needed i think
0: yep thank you bye everyone
2: thank you everyone have a good night